I would say about um, 20 years ago, I preached a sermon called 46 Past Tense Verbs. And when I did, I was focusing on all the verbs used to describe Jesus Christ's finished work. I always concentrated on, it was a past tense verb in that it was a completed action. And the other thing I focused on, all those verbs talked about an active administrator and a passive recipient. So this is a little bit of a takeoff on that. I've never taken those 46 past tense verbs and subcategorized them and did little bitty groups. And last week I tried to do that and I tried to take a handful of those verse 46 verbs and looked at the ones that had to do with cleansing and washing and, and, and purging. And Lord willing, what I'd like to do today is take another group of those 46 past tense verbs and talk about it in terms of the reconciling. Now, if you look at the third line of this song, nothing but the blood, nothing can for sin atone. Once again, I want to uh, tell you that atone is a compound word. It means to be at one with God. That's a reconciling. I really want to focus in on that reconciling. But in one of my references, I went to the Old Testament. And if you remember, the herdmen of Abraham and the herdmen of Lot were fussing at one another. And the contention got between those two, those servants so bad that finally Abraham said, y'all, we need to do something about this. And what they decided, Abraham proposed is, let's separate. And he said, Lot, there's some land this way and there's some land this way. He says, I don't care which one you pick. Whatever you pick, I'll go the opposite way. And in one sense, that reconciled the skirmish. But y'all, that's not the reconciliation Jesus did us between God and heaven. If you think about it, when I get in a fight with my wife, sometimes early in my marriage, what I would do is I'd give her a wide berth or she would give me a wide berth and we would quell the skirmish. But you know what? That was not a reconcilement. Now, I'm afraid every time I talk about stuff like this, I use my wife as an example and you think I'm fussing and we're fighting all the time. I want to assure you I've never been more in love with her than I am now. I've never needed her more. I was separated for two days. I never missed her more. But it's just so handy. It's so relatable because most of us in here are married and we can relate to that illustration. So when we're talking about a reconcilement, Jesus reconciled us to God, but it was way more than just put away the skirmish. It was a harmonious unionizing of the two people. And that's what he did for us. So what I would like to do is I want to tear apart these verses and look at them really slow and look at another aspect of what Jesus accomplished when he died on the cross. So last week, we started off with phase one of this slow looking at the finished work of Jesus Christ. And here's the passage we kicked off with. It's in John 19, 28 through 30. Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. What exactly was finished? 
And one of the things that we covered last week was we looked at there was a sanitizing, a washing element of his finished work. And what we tried to focus on last week is when we looked at Joseph and Joseph was taken out of jail and he was brought before Pharaoh, he couldn't go right to Pharaoh. The first thing he had to do was he had to clean up. He had to change his clothes. He had to shave his gnarly old beard that had been in the dungeon for how many years it was. He had to clean up. Well, that's what Jesus did to us so we could approach the king. He cleaned us up. And we tried to do that last week. This week, what we're going to try to focus is on our relational perspective with Jesus Christ. Harmony that we should have with the Lord. And then hopefully in future Sundays, we'll look at the legal aspect and the financial aspect. And with those four, I think maybe we'll have a deeper appreciation for what Jesus actually accomplished on the cross. There's a lot packed in to it is finished. So if you have your Bibles, my first two references are in Ephesians. The first one is Ephesians 1.6. Let me read that verse, talking about the harmonizing Jesus for his work accomplished between you and I. Ephesians 1 and 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. He made us accepted. We're thinking, well, God is this great, big, soft, kind grandfather. And he says, come as you are, I receive everybody. And in one aspect, he's tender that way, but in another aspect, he's not. And we had to be cleaned up and we had to be made accepted before we could even approach God. And we've just saying that we couldn't do that on our own. Jesus did that for us. And that's the part that I want to try to delve in further. Now, this might be hard to understand from a spiritual standpoint. So I'm going to keep on coming back to earthly relationships. Maybe we can understand a relationship what Jesus did for us and God. The second reference is in Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Do you understand that example I gave you about Lot and Abraham? What their resolution was to their skirmish was is they separated ways. That doesn't sound like made nigh, does it? So, Here's the the scripture. I want to read this to you. This is in Genesis 13, 7 through 12. And there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle cattle, and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. And Abraham said to Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen. For we be brethren, is not the whole land before thee. Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me, If thou will take the left hand, then I will go to the right. And if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves one from the other. Abraham dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain toward Sodom. Y'all, there might be an occasion to do that between husband and wife for about 30 minutes when you got to cool off. But that is not a permanent resolution between a husband and wife. And that is not a permanent resolution between brethren in the same church. That is not a permanent resolution between you and God. Can you imagine if your Heavenly Father says, okay, you just 
go that way and I'll go this way and we'll both just live our lives out. Man, I can't do it that way. I can't do it in a marriage. That's not a marriage. It's just, it's just a, a contractual partnership. Well, it's the same with God. Let me give you another reference. This is one that uh, Romans 12 and verse 18, it says, If possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Well, that sounds like pretty good advice. Yeah, but that's not good advice between a husband and a wife. It's not good advice between church members. It's not good advice between pastors who apparently believe the same thing. You go your way, I'll go mine. But Jesus did more. So when you hear the word like atone and reconciled and propitiation, and I'm not, I hope I'm not coming off as irreverent. Sometimes we hear those words and we don't really understand what we mean. And that's why this series called Slow Looking at the Finished Work of Jesus Christ. What exactly did he accomplish? Why did he wash us? Why did we have to be washed? Well, why did he reconcile us? Why do we have to be reconciled? There was a reunification achieved in Jesus Christ's finished work. Here's a couple of references. I want to read these, and then I want to give you the illustrations. The first reference in Colossians 1, 20 through 22. Notice the word reconcile. It shows up a couple times. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked words, works, yet now hath he reconciled. So notice there was a separation, and Jesus Christ's blood reconciled us to God, and now there's a peace in God's mind. There might not be a peace in your mind, but there's a peace in God's mind, and y'all, that's the one that really makes the difference. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Second witness, Romans 5 and verse 11. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received atonement. And atonement is a compound word that means at one. They're made one, one in harmony, one in accord. There is an example in the early church where there was a fight. And this is recorded in Acts 15. As you know, my secular vocation, I've been a teacher on and off for over 20-some years. And um, there is a unique character called an 8th grade 13-year-old boy. So I share that with you because I can get compliance in the classroom and get him to behave and stop talking and interrupting me or other students. But y'all, that's not the reconciliation I'm looking for with an 8th grade student. I don't know what it is, you know, again, if you look at the bell-shaped curve on knuckle-headedness, the peak is about 13 years old for a boy. That's, that's about what, and hopefully it starts coming down. And what happens is, is for some reason, that, that middle school boy about that age, which I've been dealing with for over 20 years, it's, it, it's almost, it's like whatever you ask them to do, they're going to do 180 degrees the opposite. I've been dealing with middle school boys for a long time. As I'm teaching in this small Christian school, I get him again in ninth grade, and I get him again in 10th grade, and I get him again in 12th grade. And all of a sudden in 12th grade, they become real people. And I could, but, but there's that reconciliation is there in 12th grade. 
it's not they're in eighth grade because they, it's the maturity, it's the hormones, it's, it's, it's whatever you want to say. But all of a sudden, the reconciliation happens. I just hate it takes four or five years. But it does happen. And you just keep on being firm, you keep on being consistent and holding the line, but at the same time, you try to do your best to, to, to show respect. And then the reconciliation comes. Y'all, that's what we're looking for. But with God, it didn't take four or five years like it does for me in a classroom. It was instantaneous because Jesus stepped in our stead and he made the reconciliation for us. All right, so let's read of a case where there was a great big strife in the early church. I'm going to read the account. This is in Acts 15. Again, I'm just going to pick out a couple verses here and there. I'm, going to, I'm not going to spend the whole time reading this whole chapter because then we couldn't get through our subject matter. But I'm going to leave that on you to go back and read the whole chapter of Acts 15. Verses 1 and 2. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, that's a very polite way of saying is they had a great big Donnybrook. They were very upset. They said, in order for you to go to heaven, you've got to get circumcised. And Paul and Barnabas, or Paul and Barnabas said, nuh-uh. So here's this fight. There's a doctrinal fight within the church. And they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go to Jerusalem unto the apostles and the elders about this question. See, to me, when I read this, this sounds like an eighth grade. I don't have to listen to you. So I get the principal in, okay, okay, I'll listen to you now. But the teacher's authority wasn't enough. I had to get the principal. But then he complied. But even though he's complying because the principal's making him comply, or he's complying because I called dad and dad's making him comply, that's not reconciliation. What that is, that's just compliance. That's appeasement. Okay. So what Jesus did was more than that. So what happened was, is they have this great big church meeting. And the first one to speak up, if I remember right, was Peter. And he says, you know, when I was preaching, this is what happened to me. And God spoke to me and I preached to some Gentiles. And this is what happened. And they didn't get circumcised. And they had just like what happened at Pentecost. It happened there and God's hand was on them. And, and that's my experience. And then Paul and Barnabas spoke and they said, you know, we've been preaching all around the Mediterranean to a whole bunch of Gentiles and we started churches and they got baptized and they were showing fruits of the Spirit. And you know what? They're believers and they're children of God. Peter didn't settle this dispute. Paul and Barnabas didn't set, settle dispute. You know who settled settle dispute? It was James. What did James do? Well, Peter told about his experience and personal relationship with God. Paul and Barnabas told about his, their experience and their personal relationship with God. You know what James is going to do? He's going to take the only thing that should be able to reconcile church brethren, and that's the Word of God. That's the only thing. I don't care what you believe. I don't care what you feel. I don't care what you think. I want to know what the Word of God says. That's the only way we will ever get reconciled here is when we go to the Word of God. So let me read 13 through 17. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take them a people for his name. 
And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. And basically what James did is he went to the Old Testament, he turned to the book of Joel and he started reading and he says, what's going on here is exactly what Joel said was going to happen. After this, I will return and will build again a tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. And there was some more discussion. So all of a sudden, Peter's experience didn't matter. Paul's experience didn't matter. You know, if anybody's experience should matter, it should be those two guys. But even that was nothing compared to Scripture. James quotes Scripture, and they go, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So look what happens next. This is where compliance came. This is where true reconciliation came. Acts 15, 22 through 25. Then it pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Bar Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabbas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren, and they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders and the brethren send greeting unto the brethren, which are the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia. For as much as we have heard that certain of you went out from us and have troubled you with words, subverting your soul, saying, ye must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we have no such commandment. It seemed good to us. Notice this phrase right here being assembled with one accord. You know what that is? That's reconciliation. If you go this way and I go this way, that's not one accord. If my wife and I can't settle on money matters and you got your checking account, I got my checking accord, y'all, that's not one accord. That's not being reconciled. Now, let me give you another example. Let's pretend um, I've got two young children. Let's go back in time and let's say, I don't know, they're eight and 10 years old, two brothers, two sisters, it doesn't matter. And they got them side by side and they have a fight. You said something, you hurt me, or you said something that hurt me. It doesn't matter what it is. Say you're sorry. I mean, how many parents have, and you, sorry. Yeah, there's reconciliation, right? Well, I'm sorry I gave you a busted lip. But you started it. What happens when you got the I'm sorry followed by a but? Have you ever seen true reconciliation when there's an apology followed by a but? It doesn't happen. That's not reconciliation. Jesus didn't say, I took care of your sins, but. Oh, boy. That's scary, isn't it? Mm -mm, that's not the way it happened. So there's a placating. Let's look at this placating here in Leviticus 16.11. Notice what happens here before the atonement is made. Aaron shall bring a bullock for a sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself for the house. Did you know before in the Old Testament, before Jesus Christ on the cross, what happened was is he had to make an atonement and he had to placate God for himself before he could placate it for somebody else? Well, Jesus didn't have to placate God for himself because he was perfect. Wow. And then Leviticus 17, 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it upon, upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. So here comes the priest and he's got to make an atonement for himself so he's worthy enough to make the sacrifice and then he makes the sacrifice for you to make you worthy. 
But the problem is on that Old Testament, it had a timer on it. It only lasted 365 days. And then what happened after 365 days? They had to do it again. And again, and again, and again. But Jesus Christ came and he did it once forever. If you and your wife are having problems and you come in with flowers, well, that'll put a smile on her face. But you're not truly reconciled. I've never seen flowers make my wife happy permanently. Jesus placating to God was deeper and richer and enduring. Let me read you 1 John 4, 10. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be propitiation for our sins. In other words, propitiation is satisfaction. And when God looked at that blood that was shed, it wasn't like my wife looking at flowers or chocolates that I might try to get her to buy my pardon for my knuckleheadedness. Now, I know, remember when I talked about those eighth grade boys and they said the peak? It doesn't mean that 60-something, it goes away. There's still some knuckleheadedness in there. It just doesn't happen nearly as often. Well, some days it doesn't happen nearly as often. And here's a second witness in Ephesians 2.16, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. He made an offering that God would accept more so than flowers and chocolates. And you might be really troubled, so you get her something even more expensive than that. But you know, money's never done that. It's when the two minds come together and there's a peace and a harmony. This, this is an aspect of God that, that we, in the year 2023, just don't understand about God. We live, we live in a culture that does not believe in absolutes. They do not actually, a lot of people don't even believe in sin. And, and how do you tell someone about you need a savior when they don't even believe in sin? I still haven't figured out how to do that. But if you get an idea of what God thinks of sin, it's not this grandpa that's going to hug you and love you no matter what you do. Look what it says about God. He's holy. Now, you know me better. I'm not giving you a fire and brimstone message and trying to scare you into obedience. Because if I scare you into obedience, guess what? That's not reconciliation. No. Maybe... I can give you a perspective where you have thanksgiving. Now you can thanksgiving yourself and do reconciliation with God, but I can't scare you one into one. Psalm 5, 4 and 5, talking about God. Thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all the workers of iniquity. Wait a second, where did that come from? Y'all, that came from the Bible. God does not like, he is holy and he can't stand to look upon sin. Psalm 10, 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. The heathen are perished out of this land. It got to a point where he says enough is enough and there's a flood. Sodom and Gomorrah, right? There's a place where he goes, I can't look at it anymore. Psalm 34, 16, the face of the Lord is against them that do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. Again, I say this all the time. He's long suffering, but he's not forever suffering. There's a point where he says enough's enough. I'm going to back away and let you do your own devices. 
So much so that God cannot even look upon a man. No, no, that is not the God that's preached. I don't care if it's the God that's preached or not. It's the one that's talked about in the Bible. And if I don't preach him that way, shame on me. Habakkuk 1.13 Thou art of pure eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? You know, when, you, when you're sitting by and you're, you're, tackling, you're, you're attacking a righteous man, God hates that. He absolutely despises that. Malachi 2.17, ye have wearied the Lord with your words. What? God's supposed to enlist me forever and ever and ever and ever and always be kind. And No. It gets to a point where God says, I'm weird. stop talking to me that nonsense. Stop cutting deals with me. Stop saying I'm sorry, but. He doesn't want to hear that. I got news for you. Your wife doesn't want to hear that all the time either. Yet you say, wherein have we wearied him? When you say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, no, you're not. And he that delighteth in them, or where is the God of judgment? And then one more, Matthew 7, 23, And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. God is saying, he's, yeah, but they're saying, Lord, Lord, Lord. And he said, no, get away. The God of heaven says, get away? Yeah, he'll say, get away. In a temporal sense, there's a place where he just, he just will stop listening. Think about it this way. Let's take someone that's got the deepest, darkest heroin addiction you ever did. That's the worst drug I know. And, and that person has, has, has just lied and robbed and, and, and hurt people. And, and, and there's a point in time where God will require you just to step back. Because there's a point, and this is for every Alcohol Anonymous's class that I've ever been associated with, there's a place where you can't help them till they hit bottom. There's a place where this heroin addict, you can't help them until they hit bottom. And when they didn't, I'm going to be there in a second. But until then, i got to step back. Well, it's the same way with God and our sin. There's a place where he says, no, i got to wait till you hit bottom. And when you hit bottom and you stop coming to me with those excuses and the buts and the justifiers, then he's, then he, then he's that receiving arm, armful guy. That's the God of heaven. That's the God that's in the Bible. And Jesus will actually depart from me? Ye that work iniquity? Yeah. I get that. But at the same time, I've got to tell you about the God in heaven and you can't expect him to listen to you and hear you. How many psalms start with the words, hear my prayer, Lord? Isn't God all-knowing? Yeah, he's all-knowing. But why would David start oh, a couple dozen psalms with, Lord, please hear me. Incline thy ear to me. Listen to me. I'm crying out to these. Pay attention. A lot of psalms, why? Because he was afraid he was in the depths of sin, and, and God would just say, no, David, you've gone too far. I'm going to turn my back on you. I want to read Nehemiah 1.9. Here's a principle that you read all throughout the scripture. In the New Testament, the Old Testament, and Hebrews, it's, it's just all the way throughout. And if you remember what happened in the book of Nehemiah, the nation Israel and, and, and Judah and Jerusalem, Jerusalem was overthrown. And finally, God said, enough's enough. 
And what he did is he said, you will be overrun and you'll be captives for 70 years. And at the end of the 70 year period, along comes Nehemiah and he comes walking up to Jerusalem and he goes, this place is a mess. So Nehemiah falls down and he starts repenting and he starts praying and he starts fasting and he's talking to God and he's praying to God. And what he's going to do is he's going to quote some scripture. And y'all, that's the only way I know how to come boldly before the throne is when I'm quoting scripture. That's it. But notice what he says. He said, God, you said, if you turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out to the uttermost part of heaven, yet I will gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set up my name there. Nehemiah is reminding God of his promise. Yes, everything that's been done to us, we deserve. We've been cast out to the outermost places, but you said, if we repent and we start obeying you, you will turn around and bring us nigh to him. That's a tough God, but it's also a loving God. He doesn't have this chip on his shoulder forever and ever and ever. There it is. That's the God we serve. Now, I feel like this has been some kind of heavy stuff. So, so let me close on a good account. I want you to consider the on, off, on again relationship between the Apostle Paul and an Apostle named Mark. A lot of times he's referred to as John Mark, same guy. But if you remember, Paul and Barnabas were traveling buddies and they usually took some sons in the ministry. And they went on these um, evangelistic tours and they circled the Mediterranean a couple times. And on one of these trips, they brought some young bucks with them, you know, some sons in the ministry, some apprentices, apprentices. And they went on this preaching ministry and they got through one and they got probably about a quarter way through looping around the Mediterranean. And this young guy named Mark, John Mark, packs up and he goes home. Paul got angry. He said, this no good, useless, sorry preacher, I want nothing to do with him again. But Barnabas said, come on, Paul, you're being a little tough on the guy. He said, I think he deserves a second chance. And Paul said, no way. I'm not going preaching with that guy ever again. So Paul took Silas Barnabas says, I think he deserves a second chance. And guess what Barnabas did? He took Mark. You know what they did? They did a lot of Abraham thing. They separated. Well, it doesn't say what happened between Paul and Barnabas, but guess what happens at the end of Paul's ministry? He's writing a letter. He's in jail. He's close to his death. And he says, tell Mark to come to me. He says, I miss him. He's profitable to me. So somewhere along the line, there was a reconciliation. What caused it? You can only guess. And I think what thing caused it was probably they went to scripture. Probably Paul was able to take a step back. This is, this is I can give you all my hypothesizing. See, Paul was a single guy, right? And he was traveling. But Mark wasn't. He had family. 
And then Paul got perspective and he realized, wow, I guess I was hard on that guy. Or, or maybe it was, Mark said, yeah, I blew it. I got tired, I got scared, I want to go home, I want to sleep in my own bed, I got tired of this traveling all over among these Gentiles, and I blew it, I got weak. But God's dealt with me, and I'm, I don't know what it is. It could have been any of those things. But the key is, is they got back together and they reconciled. So I told you, account. let's go read scripture and see if it really did happen. So the first time when they looping through the Mediterranean, this is a description of Paul and Barnabas taking off, and one of the young men they bring with them is this John Mark fellow. Now, when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John Mark, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. He didn't have Paul's permission to go. I don't know if he needed Paul's permission, but Paul thought he needed permission. So now we jump forward and some time goes by and they all get back and they're back home and they're getting ready for another evangelistic trip a year or two later. And they're all packing up and they're getting their young men together. And this is what happens. Barnabas determined to take with him John Mark. But John thought not good to take him who departed from Pamphylia, which we just read in Acts 13. The contention was so sharp between them. This is Paul and Barnabas, the traveling minister buddies, that they departed asunder one from another. Y'all, that's not reconciliation. They quenched the disagreement, but that's not reconciliation when they went like that. So Barnabas went north and Paul went west. That's the event. They went on two different evangelistic trips. But notice at the very end of Paul's life, 2 Timothy is probably one of the last things Paul wrote. And there he is in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, in chapter 4 and verse 11. And he's talking to Timothy. This is his son in the ministry. He says, Timothy, take John Mark and bring him with thee. You know, Timothy, come see me. And when you come, grab John Mark and bring him with me. Why would you want to bring that sorry preacher with you? Well, look what he says. Now, you know I'm being silly. That's not scripture. He says, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Somewhere or another, Paul had to get over himself. Or maybe Mark had to get over himself. But someone had to get over themselves. And I've never seen two people tango where there's a little bit of fault on both sides. Amen? So my guess is both of them had to get over themselves. Someone, I was, I've been in Atlanta with some preachers all week. And one of them had a design for a brand new t-shirt. It was the word get with a fraction bar. And underneath it was yourself. Get over yourself. And I think that's a pretty cool t-shirt. I might have a couple of those made up. And I don't know who was at fault. I'm guessing a little bit of both. That's my guess. So that's kind of where I'm at relative to this reconciliation. So let's go back to our first, one of our first texts. Let's go to Colossians 1. Colossians 1, this will be my last text. Y'all, if, if, if this wasn't done for us, we wouldn't have the ability to even think about heaven. We wouldn't have the ability to even get our knees and bow to him. We wouldn't have the ability to understand anything he would ever preach us or teach us or any fellowship with him, security, peace, all gone. Um, let me start at verse 
18. I'm in Colossians 1, 18. I really want to get 20 through 22, but I'm going to get a running start. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. There's nothing that we did. It was all that what Jesus did. And having made peace, that's the quenching of the schism, through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. You know, you were separated from God. He was in that position where he couldn't even look on you. Jesus interceded for you, and he made it so God would look upon you. Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. Notice it doesn't say through your baptism, through your repentance, through your charity, through your good works, through your massive understanding of Scripture, through how many verses you memorized. Note what it's through. To present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Through death, through Jesus Christ's death, that's the only reason you have that reconciliation. And it's just not a parting of the ways. It's something dip, deeper, richer, fuller. And you know what? It lasts forever in an eternal sense. In a practical sense, you or I are in a roller coaster. And we've got to kind of always come to him for that relationship. But my children will always be my children. We won't necessarily always be in that perfect harmony fellowship, but they'll always be my children. Well, Jesus made you always his children. Sometimes our personal relationship and fellowship kind of ebbs and flows. But thank you for, for Jesus. May the Lord bless you all. Thank you.